Unknowing, a true story of coming to life in the face of impending loss. Chapter 15, Using Lifeboats, June 1997. It's a good thing the secret's out at work with this pregnancy, because I've had a major growth spurt in my waistline that no amount of safety pins can accommodate. I'm not positive it's all baby with the slew of Dairy Queen blizzards I've been putting down in honor of Larissa. Either way, I'm growing uncomfortable right alongside Tom. Only the bigger I get, the smaller he gets. There is a time frame and a motivation for my discomfort. Tom has no idea how long his will go, and he's at war with the source of it. At least we are both done with the nausea. Mine from pregnancy and his from the chemotherapy. Since he finished treatment a few weeks ago, he's been milling around the house, driving River to daycare, and taking care of his own juicing. When good days come, we seize them. Last weekend it was the boardwalk. Donning a Moroccan beanie to keep his bald head warm, Tom lifted River onto the rides. All day his eyes never left his son, and a smile never left his face. In the name of normalcy, he even ate French fries with River. It cost him three days of bed rest and a digestive rut. Today I picked up River after work and have come home to Tom standing at the door with a picnic dinner packed and a rolled-up inflatable boat in tow. Let's go out to the lagoon, Rio, he rallies, shooting me a quick check-in, after the fact. My aching back has been screaming for recline all day. It will have to wait. Tom has a number on his good days, and I don't. Besides, there is nothing sweeter than being present to every last drop of quality time with our family before it changes. River shrieks in glee. I have to wonder how confusing these days of extreme fun peppered sparsely among those of fatigued and overwhelmed parents who say, sorry, not today, must be for him. Better confused than depressed, I think, as I grab sandals and sweaters for the three of us. As evening turns the light a lovely Tuscan orange, we drift about the lagoon that joins the Carmel River to the Pacific Ocean. A swarm of pelicans pass over us, blessing us with the soft pulse of their wings. My eyes well up from the joy that is palpable between us. Moments like this make everything worth it. Later that night, sleep comes hard and fast to Tom. Sometime in the wee hours, though, I hear him get up and I know something's wrong because he usually pees in his bedside bottle. Tom, what's happening? I mumble, fighting my way out of sleep. Slam! And the half-moon's light, I see the outline of his body flop backwards into the closet doors. He's down by the time I jump out of bed. Slumped in a stupor, Tom utters nonsense between dry heaves. When he comes to, he's confused and doesn't remember falling. What he is clear on is that a trip to the ER is not an option. It's okay, Jen. I've got an appointment in a couple days. It can wait, he says as I wedge myself under his armpit and help him back into bed. Something is very wrong. It's June 12th, and I have no idea what is happening in the world other than that President Clinton is in office and the California medical marijuana law has been upheld, though it makes no difference now that Tom is adamantly opposed to using it. 
The only thing significant to me is that it's Tom's 52nd birthday, and likely his last. As promised, he calls me at work after his doctor's appointment. Got myself one hell of a birthday present, he says playfully. I'm hopeful. What? Got a brain tumor the size of a pea right in the brainstem. Can you believe it? His tone contradicts the words. What? Are you kidding? I'm confused. You've got to come with me when I get my radiation mask. It's a fascinating procedure. They press this net against my face and it makes a replica. And I'll need to come daily for six weeks. Oh yeah, I can't drive anymore. They have a ride service. We'll have to get the schedule. He speaks fast and sounds like a kid reporting on birthday scores. No, don't you give in to being a patient, I think. I heave a sigh of exhaustion, already anticipating the implications of a brain tumor. Shit, Tom, why are you all happy? Simple, Jen. It's my birthday, maybe my last, and nothing's going to blow it. Besides, a brain tumor isn't all bad. It could be my best friend if this gets real drawn out and painful. I could just drop dead. Oh, let's talk at dinner, I say, feeling a lump already congregating in my throat. I'm not ready for him to die suddenly. At least with an illness, there is time to adjust, to plan. In the time between work and what is supposed to be his celebration dinner, I make frenzied efforts to accommodate the news. Since this morning, logistics have become impossible. He can't drive at all, and there's no chance he'll be going back to work. He can't be left alone with River and shouldn't be left by himself. For dinner, we pretend we're tourists with money and go out at a place on Cannery Row that overlooks the bay. Zoe isn't available, so River comes along. Our conversation is limited. I just stare at Tom as he converts the napkin into a puppet for our son's entertainment. Nobody would ever guess this man was diagnosed with a brain tumor today. The reality check comes within a week's worth of compensating for all he can't do anymore. River enters into the full throes of his two-year-old rebellion, and Tom has taken to the bed between daily radiation treatments. The household stress level has blown out the roof. My temper is hair-trigger, and I fear breaking. Breaking down, breaking my child's arm, breaking Tom's heart. Keeping up with a spirited two-year-old while my belly grows between us, picking up and administering medications, Juicing, juicing, and juicing more for Tom's regime, going to work, coordinating child care and Tom's care, making food, cleaning up puke, nursing, paying bills, and sometimes walking the dog, has brought me to my knees. It's time to make some calls. Tom's therapist, Patty, is first on the list. She's been coming to our home occasionally for Tom's sessions and agrees to facilitate the meeting. With her on board, I'm committed to making the meeting happen. Methodically, I move down the substantial row of names, dial, and spit out my spiel before I second-guess my invitation for help. What I need most is a Russ kind of person, someone else to run the show with organizing the actual help. The very idea of trying to do that myself while I'm bouncing unpredictably around the full gamut of emotions is part of what has kept me from pursuing help for so long. Talking on the phone, answering endless questions about Tom's health status, and asking for help directly, 
ranked down there with dog poop patrol and taxes. Back in April, when I first called Nick, he had referred me to a book, Share the Care. I've been plugging along through it in time for the meeting. It has forms to copy in the back for organizing the intricate web of help I'm weaving to catch my family's fall. During the meeting, the papers will give me a focus, something in writing that'll keep me from forgetting what we're meeting for. It'll be all too tempting to say we're just fine once Patty discloses the pitfalls of helping. On the afternoon of the initial support network meeting, I order pizza and sit on the couch with multicolored stacks of forms spread across the table and a basket of pens. I close my eyes and imagine Russ telling me what an opportunity it was to help. Rewind again, louder this time. His face is huge on my mind screen. I've pictured him handsome, with dimples and orange hair, like an old college buddy whose nickname, Rusty, came from his brilliant rust-colored hair. Ring! The doorbell interrupts. Here goes. Big smile. Do we have an offer of a lifetime for you? I open the door to the pizza guy. Good practice, anyway. The difficulty isn't only in asking for help and admitting I can't do it all anymore. It's also letting people decide if and how they will take this offer. What if nobody shows? Impulsively, I call Nick at the last minute and leave a message. Sure, he wouldn't get a sitter in time to make it. Over the next half an hour, our tiny living room fills to maximum capacity. Tom drags himself downstairs to be with his guests, as if to prove he's worth investing help in. I overhear him tell a friend, Oh, I'm feeling better. I'm going to get through this. It'll just take some time. So much for our game plan to be honest and talk openly about the possibility of him dying, I think. Making himself likable is in Tom's blood, like independence is in mine. He can't tolerate the perception that he has given up. If people need to see a battle, well then, God damn it, he'll show him one. The crowd brings him to life, making it easy to overlook his sagging clothes and protruding clavicles. Patty starts the meeting before Tom has everyone convinced this is a cocktail party and not a desperate cry for help. She's midstream introducing the concept of a support network when the doorbell rings again. Eliza lets in the late guest. A man enters. His hair is red, glowing from the afternoon sun streaming through the door behind him. An orange glow continues a rough edge around a shadowed face, indicating a beard. Hmm, I think. This must be Russ. Funny I don't remember inviting him. Welcome, I say, approaching the stranger with an outstretched hand. Time is stubbed upon our contact, breaking itself up into frames. Hand, warm, man, light, orange, deep sound. Jennifer? It's Nick. Nick McWay. Oh, oh, hi, come on in. Morse code vibrations tap tenaciously from bones to heart before I can intercept and think right over the flush of knowing. It's the kind of knowing that has led me to now. Please, no, not yet. Though I've promised to listen when it comes, this isn't good timing. I push it away. But the realization that Nick is going to be a significant figure in my life is undeniable. It has me bumbling through introductions. 
My ears are hot, and I can only imagine the contrast of these crimson crescents against blonde hair. Why did I wear my hair up anyway, I think. Quickly, I point Nick to the food and take my place on the floor between Tom's bony legs, making it clear to myself and anyone who witnessed the time warp. It wasn't anything. I'm with my man till death do us part. Patty has a few words with Nick, and then the next thing you know, he's in the center of the circle, clearing his throat to speak. It seems as if the room has been waiting for him, and he for it. As he steps into the spotlight of the afternoon sun and begins his story, everyone hushes, captivated by the heart in his telling. There were the endless ups and downs in his wife's journey, just as there have been in Tom's. Listeners seem to easily translate his story to our situation. Only, unlike us, Nick had asked for help early on and really knew how to use it. From picking up their three-year-old son from preschool to helping his wife adhere a huge butterfly tattoo onto her bald head, there were so many places for those watching from the sidelines to step in and be one less degree helpless to a possible tragedy unfolding right in front of them. That is where we are. The tension in the room thickens in anticipation of what happens next. They don't know. Nick smiles, accounting the celebration they had with their support network when Wendy had gone into remission. Everyone had been thanked heartily and let off duty. An audible sigh passes through the room. Relaxed brows quickly contort with concern when Nick inhales deeply and resumes. His eyes water and his voice grows determined as he moves into telling the whole story. Tom's legs stiffen in anticipation of his cover being blown. Nick talks about how the network had reconvened when Wendy's cancer had returned a few months later in a more aggressive form. The grace was in the way people showed up for us and for each other, he says. One of the hardest things for all of us to get was that even when she was looking so sick and completely out of it, she was still Wendy, alive until dead. He looks at Tom, and Tom blinks in recognition of a truth that is out before he can make it more palatable to others. Nick continues, It's challenging to be around someone who is getting better one minute and dying the next. Nick scans the group, suddenly aware that some people may not know this helping stint may not be about Tom getting better. Just try and be with Tom where he's at, no expectations, he says, looking at me. He's clearly been on this path with greater consciousness than I feel capable of. A pause for emphasis is broken by one of those snort coughs people with post-nasal drip do every other minute. When he picks up again, death is undeniably in the room. The story doesn't end with her last breath. Nick talks of how the support network had gathered at Wendy's deathbed. After a long silence, tears, and consoling, a few close friends had helped to bathe her, paint her nails, and dress her in the outfit she had ordered for Christmas just a month before she died. He tells us how everyone had participated in putting together a celebration of her life just weeks after, so he could be free to feel his grief. It was an incredible gift to feel such support through my wife's illness, her death, and even now as I rebuild my life as a single parent. Still, it astounds me that it was mutual, he says. Heads tilt and eyebrows raise. Tell them how, 
I urge him on like he's got telepathy or something. I keep hearing from friends how profoundly the experience has impacted them and how grateful they are for having been allowed into Wendy's dying process. It was her last and greatest gift, he says, looking around the room at each person. Some nod in return and others look away. I'm right there with him until he stops speaking. Then I fall flat into this reality where such things don't seem possible. The pace I've taken just to keep up with my life goes much too fast for such heart connection. Slowing down as things get more difficult doesn't seem like an option. It saddens me that this grace feels just out of reach. Tom knows exactly what Nick is talking about, only he opts to take care of those who don't. No worries, things are looking good here. I'm getting radiation treatment now. Who knows that the miracles of modern medicine are capable of these days, he says. Only a couple of people, who are prepared to help with a quest toward cure and not a potential death, fly with this statement. At the break, they check their watches and declare they are late for appointments. Better they peel off now, I think. Those who stay fill out the endless forms and seem to have resonated with Nick's words. They're on for the long haul. Paper noises hum in the background as everyone fills out their information sheets, preferences for ways of helping and availability. Meanwhile, Patty goes over the pitfalls. She encourages helpers to avoid being martyrs, use good boundaries, take care of themselves first, support each other emotionally, and respect our family's privacy. Eliza and Ed raise their hands to tag-team the coordinator's job. They'll be the bridge and the buffer between our family and all of those helping. My job will be to fill out a calendar of needs each week, and they'll do their best to fill them. They, and not me, thank God, will initiate the phone tree for updates of Tom's condition. It's a lot to ask of anyone, but I know dang well if it's left to me the calls won't get made. We'd remain struggling in isolation. I let go. Hope enters, like a tendril of jasmine luring me into graciously receiving the sweetness it offers so freely. It has me considering the possibility that I could stop this crazed pace of keeping up with life and simply be with Tom for whatever time he has left. The pizza is gone, the forms are filled out, and I have thanked everyone for coming, and people are slow to leave. They are friends and acquaintances from different pockets of our lives. It's as if they need to orient themselves with this new circle, one that might take them to unknown places. When they finally do depart, what lingers is a sense that we aren't alone. Hallelujah. Within a couple of weeks, our support network is up and running full bore. Roxanne comes over daily to walk Kisma, who has been pacing the confines of our tiny backyard for weeks. Bob isn't comfortable watching Tom's body fade. He helps by writing an article in the local paper highlighting Tom's contribution as an umpire and announcing a fund being set up to help our family with medical expenses. Ingrid shops at the farmer's market, gathering a hearty list of juicing vegetables, and delivers them every Tuesday. Nick brings River on playdates with his son Conrad, so Tom and I can have some together time. Stella begins a regular schedule of visits from Hollister to stay with Tom while I do errands. 
Eliza picks up her little brother and brings him to her mom's house for a couple of hours so I can take respite and a good swim at the local pool. A woman from Tom's cancer support group heard about that network and signed on for a pot of her famous chicken soup every Thursday. Tom sips the broth while River and I put down seconds and thirds. I'm left feeling nurtured, built up enough for another day. When Tom's hives aren't flaring up, Sean comes over and gently massages his weary body to sleep. Even I get some prenatal body work occasionally from a massage therapist who's heard about us from a mutual friend. The phone has stopped ringing, and this is a good thing. It's phenomenal to be on the receiving end of so much generosity. Once we start getting it, though, I realize how much we actually need. I'm careful not to ask too much and chance burning people out early on. After all, none of us knows how long this could go on. Just when things begin to seem manageable, a nasty green vine creeps up my leg and winds itself tightly around my chest. It has me in its clutch, like it or not. Jealousy sucks. Everyone who gets to go home to what I fantasize as a normal life is a target. Worse, it sickens me to be anything other than immensely grateful, so I've got a heap of guilt on top of it. Vicky drops off a casserole on the doorstep and then returns home to her healthy husband and secure future. Her dancer body moves gracefully across the driveway. It's hard to believe we have the same due date. We met back in February at a meeting for those considering home births. I recognized her husband, Evan, who was an old friend of Tom's. Evan asked why Tom hadn't come along, and I brought him up to speed. He winced and said, So sorry. By the end of the meeting, it was clear to me that we couldn't afford a home birth. I told them I wouldn't be back. They walked me to my car, and Vicky said, We'd like to help, really. Here's our number. Call us. When I did eventually call, they eagerly joined our support network. Vicky and I have talked more. I really like her. She's so sharp and together, like I was at one time, and maybe still would be if Tom had stayed in remission. These thoughts have me caught in a downward spiral. Before long, I'm jealous of everyone who doesn't have a sick husband. It's getting ugly. I dread coming home to other people in our house when I can't hold together a social facade for a moment longer. I resent having to trade our privacy for help at a time when I want to hide in a closet and scream. Instead of biting someone else's head off midway through a second explanation of Tom's medicine regime, I bite off my own with brutal internal dialogue that gnaws away at any shreds of self-compassion I've cultivated with Mary Beth's help. How can I be so damn ungrateful? Before I sour our help, I release them from duty. This has been read to you by the author, Jennifer Allen, copyright 2009.